Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 8 is where we are this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 8. We've been moving along pretty, pretty rapidly here. We'll pick up chapter by chapter and finish up the book of 2 Samuel in a few months. Um, we're praying about where we're going next. We like to do Old and New Testament, we'll probably go into a, a New Testament book. The pastor elders uh, went away on a retreat last week and just began to pray and where God would lead us and what book we will study next. We do expository preaching here as a major diet, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but also expository means bringing out fr- the, the meaning of the text from the text, letting God speak uh, through his word. So we're, we're praying where to go next, but we are wrapping up Samuel. We're in Second Samuel chapter 8, as I mentioned. Samuel, you know, is named... Uh, after uh, the son of a godly woman of faith. Her name was Hannah. Samuel was a prophet, priest, and judge of Israel who served the Lord faithfully. He was given a divine task by God to anoint the first and second king of Israel. If you remember from the book of Samuel, when we opened up way back in 1 Samuel, the book opened up as the book of Judges was closing historically. And in the book of Judges, on the last chapter and the last verse, kind of gives us the historical context of what was going on in the life of Israel. And it says, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Samuel was that servant of God that led the nation or the people of God from a theocracy, a, a people ruled under God. Through his word by the prophet, his priest in the tabernacle, the judges that were raised up, to a monarchy. A monarchy where there was kings. We know that Saul was the first king, David, and now is the second king of Israel. And a lot has happened up to this place in 2 Samuel chapter 8. David now is king over Israel. All Israel. And in chapter 8, we get a glimpse, we're getting a glimpse this morning, of how David's reign and David's rule over the people of God actually began. Chapter 8 is not strictly, just so you know, is not strictly chronological. Many people try to figure out where all these incidences are taking place historically, chronologically, in the book of Samuel. But I, I think it, if you get bogged down with that, you miss the point of the chapter. Although some of what chapter 8, which I'll read in a little bit, describes what took place probably before chapter 7, the narrator chose to put it all together here in chapter 8 for a reason. For a reason, a, a succinct characteristic of the kingdom in chapter 8. And, and it's, I think it's obvious and clear why, because he wants to show us uh, in this narrative of what the kingdom will look like, a foreshadow, a picture of the kingdom of God on earth. Not a perfect kingdom, but as we look at this, this kingdom today, we'll take a, a macro look, we'll step back, and we're going to see today, I hope when we're done, some important realities that you and I can begin to live in and look forward to the coming of the kingdom. What does the kingdom look like? That's why the title of the sermon is The Already and Not Yet. We've been saying over the past two weeks, chapter 7, right before 8, obviously, is crucial in understanding the work of God in redemption. It's called redemptive history. Chapter 7 is crucial to understanding the work of God in redemption, but it's also crucial to understand the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 7 is very important because chapter 7 is where we read about the what's called the Davidic covenant where God promises 
in his word to David that he will, look with me, chapter 7, verse 9, make for you a great name. Speaking to David through the prophet. Verse 10, he will point a place for my people Israel to dwell in safety. Verse 11, chapter 7, verse 11, he declares that the Lord will make you a house, you a dynasty. Remember, David wanted to build him a house. God said, no, I'm going to build you a dynasty. Verse 12, I will raise up an offspring after you who will build the house for me, and he will establish the kingdom forever. We know that person is Solomon. Verse 12, verse 13. Verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from him. Talking about Solomon. And your house, verse 16, chapter 7, verse 16, very important. Your dynasty, your house, and your kingdom shall be made sure, unmovable, forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God promised to make David a great name, to give him a place for people to dwell in safety, and his offspring or his seed, depending on your translation, will come from him, and he will be the ultimate king who will sit on an eternal throne. This promise goes back even further than David, right? We said in Genesis 3.15, in the midst of sin and chaos, because Adam broke his covenant with God, God promised and steps in and says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And God gives this promise that a man will come, a deliverer will come, a, 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 someone who will come that will be wounded, but will ultimately crush the head of Satan. And God has been working since Genesis 3.15 through this seed to someone who would come to forgive and conquer sin and death and hell. And, the, and this continuation that God made Adam, enlarged with Abraham, and now in David, has been given to David, but will fulfill, be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the king of kings. That's where we get our title from. So David's king, yes, but Jesus will come, who will be the king of kings. And this promise goes back to Abraham, to Adam, to Abraham. Very important you see that this morning. And one of the things that we must see in this chapter is, and I'm going to take a long way in, just be ready. Because you have to see this chapter in its context and how you got to see that God is continuing, was then and is now continuing to restore all of creation. When God created the world, all that he made, Genesis 1 and 2, what you find there is a picture of, a reality of the kingdom of God on earth where God is the king, not only on earth, but God as he walked with Adam in the garden, but he was king in their hearts and their minds. They were devoted in the garden to the Lord. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve's relationship with their creator, with creation, was, a, was what the Bible calls shalom. There, there was wholeness, there was sound mind, there was sound emotions, untainted by sin. Shalom, peace, innocence, beauty, Genesis 1 and 2. Not just peace with God, but peace emotionally, psychologically, physiologically, peace. It, it, it was peace alone with a purpose for which they were created. Everything in creation was used and devoted to and experienced in the worship of their God, of the God, the creator God. But Genesis 3, as Adam, our representative, sinned, all have sinned now, and now 
Sin enters the word, world, and we, and we choose to be our own kings. We want to be our own lords. We want to be our own masters. We don't trust in the goodness of God. We want to do things on our own. And then self-centeredness takes place, Genesis 3. And the kingdom is fractured. Things begin to unravel emotionally, spiritually, socially. Their sons kill one another. Kill, one son kills the other. It's unraveling, and the kingdom is, is fractured. There is sin, and it's in the midst of that brokenness where that Genesis 3 comes in, that God will, will, will have a promise. And, and, and not only did he promise Adam, but remember what he said to Abraham, too, that from your descendants, singular, I'm going, I'm going to gather a people, and I'm going to bless the whole world. That promise given to Abraham, Paul says, was the gospel. That was preached to Abraham. And the kingdom of God was once more promised to the line of Abraham, promising a future kingdom. After Abraham comes Moses. It's it's kingdom time. Moses, get my people, leave and go to the place. I will show you the land flowing with milk and honey. And and Moses leads the people. It's kingdom time. It's a place for the people of God to dwell where God's land and God's rulership over God's people. Moses, of course, you know, doesn't go in, but God raises up Joshua, and in they go. And then the book ends, and everything's great for the rest of eternity. No. Right? Why? Because sin still remained. And God raises up David, a king, and continues this promise of a future kingdom, of a future king, an everlasting king, all of this, I make it important, I, I, I'm saying this all to you because this imagery, this, this, this kingdom imagery was a national hope for Israel. And for centuries, the Jewish people kept getting these promises, these pictures of this coming kingdom, these, these prophecies, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, of this great day coming when the reign and the rule and the power of God will come. And God will finally and fully come, restore all things. And that was their hope, is their hope. In fact, the Old Testament closes in the book of Malachi, or if you're Italian, Malachi, chapter 4, of the coming kingdom, this great and glorious day of the coming kingdom. Why? Because no one gets it right. No one. In all the Old Testament, no one gets it right. We'll see a glimpse of rightness today. But just come back in a couple of weeks. David's going to blow it big time. Right? Nobody gets it right. And here in chapter 8, though, but here in chapter 8, we get a glimpse. Again, a foreshadow. A foreshadow of this great anticipation of the kingdom and what the kingdom will look like. That's why chapter 8 comes after chapter 7. The Davidic covenant. It's God's king reigning in God's kingdom on earth. Remember, I've said this before, when you hear the word, the kingdom of God or the kingdom, first thing, king. Because the kingdom, the first thing that we learn about kingdom is not the realm of the kingdom, but the one who reigns in the kingdom. So think of king. When you think of kingdom, think of king. Three pictures of the kingdom, what we're going to see today. Three pictures of this foreshadowing of the kingdom. That's what chapter 8 is all about. And what we'll see is first this conflict and this conquest of the kingdom. And we'll see the spoils and the submission of the kingdom. And then the exercise and expression of the kingdom. 
So that's where we're at. I'm going to read the chapter to you first, and then we'll just, we'll just jump right into the outline, okay? So 2 Samuel chapter 8, hear the word of the Lord. I'm reading from ESV. After this, after this, after the covenant was given and the covenant promises were given and David worships the Lord because of the covenants. We saw that last week. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amah out of the hands of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab and he measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he'd measured to put to death and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites brought, became servants to David and brought tribute. See what's going on here. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of, I got a lot of words to you here, so. Rahab, the king of Zobah, as, the, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians and Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram, Aram and Damascus, and the Syrians became servants of David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadazar and brought them to Jerusalem. And, and from Beta and from Beratha, Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. Then Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer. Toy sent his son Jerem to King, to king David to ask about his health <laughs> and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer, you've got to keep saying this, I don't know why that's the way they write, had defeated him and Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram, which is his son, brought with him articles of silver, gold, and bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, Ammonites, Philistines, Amalek, from the spoils of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself. When he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom through all Edom. He put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So, verse 15. David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeroah, was over the army. And Josaphat the son of Ahilatub, Ahilatub, was recorder, and Zodak, the son of Hiatub, and Amalek, you looking for names? Here you go. And the son of Abiathar, the priest, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoda, was, Jeho, Jehoda, was over the Cherethites and Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. There's names. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. The narrator is going to great lengths in describing these, these, 
conflicts and these conquests of the kingdom and the expansion of the kingdom of Israel. God told David, remember in chapter 7, I'm going to appoint a place for my people and plant them and they will dwell there. Verse 10, they will be disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more. The place that God had promised not only to David, but to Abraham, is now being seen. From, from the River Nile to the Euphrates to the Mediterranean, west and east to the Jordan Valley. Now, I have a map, just so you see. So there's Jerusalem, Moab, Edom. You can see the different places, Amalekites down to the, uh, to the south, to the west, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Syria. Um, up top was the, the Syrians. I have one more. I don't know if that's any better. Probably not. But you can see what's happening here. You can see this expansion, north, south, east, and west, under the reign and rule of David. Right? And he's extending it, like I said, west, the Philistines, the Moabites, to the east, to the north, the Syrians, to the south, the Edomites. And throughout this narrative, what you see the narrator telling us over and over again is that David defeated them, and which, which means cut them off, just, just you know, um, defeated, but, but then he used the word subdued as well. You'll see defeated, cut them off, subdued, which means humble them. And that the threat of Israel now, there's peace, right? There's no more threat. And under King David's rule, God's promise of this land, of this peace, of this settlement, of this expansion, make, you know, comes to this new level of fulfillment. Conflict, then conquest. But notice who gets all the glory. The victories over the armies, the victories over the enemies of God ultimately belong to God. And that's why in our narrative, and I got the verses up for you, verse 6b and verse 14b is the glue that holds the, the, the narrative together, especially the victories and the enemies. And, and, and the narrator says it to us twice. The Lord gave victory to David. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. We can see clearly that God is the, is the only reason that David was king, who he was, and what he was doing. And the text highlights for us the true hero of every story, the true hero of every narrative. You may read stories about Abraham or David or some men of faith. They're not the hero. God's the hero. God's the hero in every story. God blesses David, yes. The divine king grants human kings victory, but God is the hero and each one of these victories is, is, is extraordinary work of God, the goodness of God, because the enemies of God's kings were enemies of God's good purposes for the nation. And their defeat was necessary if God's kingdom of justice and righteousness was to be established on the earth. It, it was a demonstration. This is a demonstration that God is able to save his king and his people from the enemy from the threats of the enemy. And I'm here to tell you that 3,000 years later, nothing's changed. Conflicts, conflicts against the enemies of God abound, but praise God, he is able to give us the victory. God provides a way out of trouble. It doesn't mean that David's not gonna have any more trouble. Right? There are those that tell you, receive Christ, Lord and Savior, and all your worries and fears will go away. Well, the only ones that, say that, they don't even believe it. 
but they're driving their jets around, so they're happy. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have have overcome the world. Our relationship with God as adopted, we we sung that a minute ago, as adopted children, sons and daughters of God, is certainly no guarantee that there will always be this success according to the world's standard. But God will empower us. God will give us the victory to fulfill the mission that he has called us on and what he wants us to do. And like David was able to become Israel's king, Through the Spirit, we too, by the Spirit of God, can accomplish and conquer things that God has given us victory over. And family, I will tell you, whenever and wherever Christ the King is preached, whenever and wherever the gospel is proclaimed, conflict will arise. Next week, here at the church, we're going to have four baptisms. Looking forward to it. The enemy is not. When I first started doing baptisms here, I had no idea on how much the enemy hates baptisms. So if you're here this morning and you're getting baptized on Sunday, keep your eyes open. Greater he that is in us, yes, than he that is in the world, yes. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be aware. We should be aware of his scheme. So the enemy doesn't like it. And no, we, we, we fight, we have conflicts, and we are to conquer Not with bullets, not with bombs. Ephesians tells us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of this present age. Against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And therefore the children of God don't take up bulletproof vests. We put on the armor of God. To to withstand the evil day. Firm in the belt of truth breastplate of righteousness, shoes for the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We put on a shield of faith as the children of God. We, we extinguish the, art, the darts, the flaming darts of the enemy by the shield of faith. We put on the helmet of salvation. We have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying, don't forget that. A lot of times we talk about this armor and we, we forget verse 18 of Ephesians. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. There's a battle. There's a conflict. Colossians tells us that as Christians, when God delivers us and saves us and rescues us, he delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom, to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So, family, let me ask you. Don't raise your hand. Just think about it. You can talk about it in your community groups this week. Maybe, just maybe, we do not get involved in the conflict because we fail to realize that there's a fight, a spiritual battle going on, and we need to put on the armor of God. That's our call, to live as missionaries in the world that is hostile against God. Our acquiescing of this battle is a victory for the enemy. Make no mistake, we don't have the victory in ourselves, but God does. It is the work of God. But we are soldiers on mission to love, to serve, to care, to demonstrate the gospel with love, to declare the gospel and share our faith of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Pastor Paul the Apostle, evangelist, church planter, told young Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. 
I have kept the faith. God is conquering his enemies. He's expanding his kingdom. The question is, family, will you join him? Loving others and sharing the gospel with others. Look at the spoils. Verse 9 and following. David not only defeats his enemies, but he's growing his war chest. <laughs> he, he's getting all kinds of bling for his kingdom. Now, I don't even know if they use that term anymore, so I'm probably showing my age. But <laughs> he's getting gold and silver and all those glittery things. Verse 3, verse 4, he defeats Hadadzar. Uh, he restores powers uh, from the Euphrates. He's, he, he's taken for himself 1,700 horses, 20,000 foot soldiers. And it says that he hamstrung all the chariot horses but left 100 I had to look up, what, what, what does it mean to hamstrung a horse? It's actually to, to, to break the tendon. And we, we have to be careful that we don't judge David. It's a different era, a different place, a different culture. Okay, his actions were signs of the time. Um, they, they, they would evaluate their, their prisoners and they would do things that we would not necessarily do today. David did not live in a time remotely similar to the Western culture. So we have to be careful, but that's what David did. Actually, the Torah, the law, prohibits kings from getting and acquiring great number of horses, believe it or not. In fact, the chariot horse in Israel probably isn't that useful with the terrain that is in Israel, and that's one of the reasons as well. Something very interesting, though, as I was studying this week. King David, you know, wrote a lot of the Psalms. King David will write this Psalm. Think about this Psalm in the context of this doing away with these, these chariot horses. Psalm 20, verse 7. You know this verse. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. To trust in chariots was a sign of Israel's turning from trusting in the Lord. God did not want Israel to rest completely and totally on their military strength, but to rest in the Lord. And that's, that's what Saul did. Saul didn't trust the Lord. That's, remember, remember Israel said, we want a king to fight our battles. We want a king like everybody else. They weren't trusting in the Lord to fight their battles. And family, that's true for us today. That, that, that is true for us today. We want to put to death anything and everything that can lead us to a misplaced confidence where our confidence needs to be in the Lord. It's good to, 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 to gather information and, 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 you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't do anything, but ultimately our confidence is in the Lord. And David will take many spoils. But as you read this narrative of the Israelite king, David, sitting on the throne of God's kingdom, he's also submitting to the king. And that's something King Saul never did, which we notice. Look at verse 7. David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants and brought them where? To Jerusalem, to the city of God. And from Beta and Barathai, cities of Hadazar, King David took very much bronze. Now, remember, David said to the king, said, David said to God, I want to build you a temple. Uh, you, you, you're, you're, you're doing all these great things for me. I want to build a magnificent place. I'm here with a cedar house, and you're over there in a tent. I want to build you. What did God say? God said no. God said no. And rather than just pout, God said no. David submits to God, and what does he do? He brings the spoils to Jerusalem. Guess who's going to use those spoils, that gold, that silver, that bronze. His son, Solomon, 
to build a temple in the future. He was kingdom-minded, not self-minded. Even a smart king knows when it's time to just give up. Look at verse 9. Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated a whole army, and Toy sent his son to ask him about his health. How are you feeling these days? Everything going okay? Got any heartburn? Maybe a headache? I got some Advil. How are you feeling? And to bless him because he fought against Hadadezer. Well, he, he was at war. Toy was, awfully, was at war with him. So we're glad. I get this guy off my back, right? More material. Look at verse, uh, yeah, 9 and 10. You have a silver, gold, and bronze. Verse 11, what does David do? He dedicated to the Lord the silver and the gold. He dedicated all the nations that he has subdued. He humbled from Edom, Moab, all the way through. And verse 13, made a name for himself. Does that sound familiar? That's the promise God made. We're going to make a name for you. God kept his promise. He said it last week. God's a covenant-making God. God's a covenant-keeping God. And God's promise to you and to me is a sure thing. And we see some nations needed to be defeated. Others just submitted. Some nations were persistent in their disobedience. Others repent. Some are, some are crushed. Some are, some are contrite. King, King Toy saw the writing on the wall, and he's like, ah, you know, here's a gift. I come in peace. The gift he's giving, he's hoping that there'll be peace. He's expressing gratitude that he took care of Hadadezar because he was a problem to him. And that's, that just illustrates for us again this pattern of the kingdom. Some people come to faith through severe conflict. That's how I came. Drug addiction and and. All kinds of things. Some of you, though, came to faith as a young child. You know? And praise God you did. I mean, praise God that you were taught Jesus at a young age. And the sinful passion that you were dealing with was stealing that, you know, Oreo cookie you weren't supposed to have. Praise God for that. Right? Not like me. You got to deal with all the garbage that brought in. But that's okay. Because you're all sinners need to go to hell anyway. I'm, we're all saved by grace the same way. Whether it's an Oreo or not. So we're all level. But some of you just came just out of a young age. Tender heart. Yes, Jesus. That's awesome. That's awesome. And what, what does David do? David takes the spoils, submission to God, and, and dedicates it. You see that? There's a dedication. That's what, that's what life is like under King Jesus. David knew that God had given the victory, and that is why he is dedicating, consecrating. That's, that's the word. It's actually the word where we get the word holy or sanctified. Same word. Spoils to God, verse 11, twice. Dedicated, dedicated. Remember, dedication, consecration is both. Being dedicated to something from something. It's a dedicated from and it's a dedicated to. So these things are dedicated to God from the world to God from the world right you can't dedicate this is yours Lord but I'm going to use it over here that's not what it means right so in the temple they would have showbread or they would have temple utensils and temple furniture it wasn't like the priest said I'm going to take the couches home with me Monday you know through Sunday and and you know Saturday we'll come back and we'll put the no 
When there was a dedication to God, everything to the temple was dedicated only to be used, only to be used for the worship of God. That's what David is doing here. God has set apart David by grace alone to serve him and to fulfill what he, God, had promised to do. And now David is responding in grace to the promises that God had made and kept in obedience and dedication. And family, that's what living in God's kingdom is, is a call to set aside our agendas and to seek the will of God. This reminds me of Jesus. If you remember uh, the night before which he was the night that he was betrayed in which he would be crucified on the next day. He took his disciples together. And we have John 17, his high priestly prayer. And Jesus is praying and they're listening. And he prays, Father, I have given them your word, your promise, the things that you have said. The world has hated them because they're not of the world, just just as I am not of the world. There's that conflict. I do not ask, Jesus said, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. There's that victory, conflict victory. John 17, 17, sanctify them. There's our word. Set them apart. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. As you sent me, Father, you sent me on a mission. So I have sent them into the world on mission. We can't die for sin, but we can proclaim the death of Christ for sin. Set apart from the world, yet sent into the world on mission. That's what Jesus is praying. And kingdom living under King Jesus is both. It's a setting apart from sin and rebellion, but a setting us to something, namely mission. Demonstrating the gospel in love and declaring it in good deed. So David here is expanding the kingdom through conflict and conquest, taking the spoils and submitting to God and dedicating all that he has back to God. This is not an option, but an evidence of of the kingdom reality lived out in the life of David, in your life, in the life of the church. I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. A church that is not grounded and centered on the mission of God doesn't qualify as a New Testament church whose leader, whose head, whose chief shepherd is Jesus who's on mission. Kingdom people live on mission submitting to King Jesus, gathering the spoils of war and giving all the glory to God. Revelation 4. 24 elders fall down Before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you. (laughs) Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And this casting of crowns is an act of submission, this act of of laying down, of recognition, of, 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 of homage, as they recognize the great king. That no matter what gifts we get, no matter what spoils we get, no matter what goes on in our life, doesn't compare to our great God and Savior. <laughs> doesn't compare to the great gift of salvation and his, and his absolute worthiness of our praise. You have conflict and conquest. You have spoils and submission. And here's something interesting. The exercise and the expression, verses 16 through 18. The, verse 16 through 18, the narrator gives us the military, the priestly, other appointments of David's cabinet, right? You can look at that. And you see clearly now the difference between a theocracy, 
ruled by prophets and priests and elders of Judah, to a monarchy where there's kings. And now we're calling people according to their, not, not necessarily their, their lineage, their family link, but now according to their skills and abilities. You have generals and recorders. You have Joab first. He's the commander of the army. You remember Joab? He's the one that killed Abner. He had two brothers. He was kind of ruthless. And David will never forget that. Then you have Josephat. He's the recorder. He means the Lord judges. That's what that means. He's a public recorder, an official in charge of state business. Zodak means righteous. According to 1 Chronicles 6, he's a descendant of Aaron. Then Abiathar, remember him? Abiathar's son, Ahimelech. Ahimelech, if you remember, Abiathar was the, was, uh, um, was the priest at Nob. Remember, that, remember David went there and then Saul came back and slaughtered everybody. So all these people are connected with David. They're priests, they're secretaries, they're important people. Uh, you got Sariah, verse 17, secretary of the kingdom, all right? Like a secretary of state. And then Benaiah, the Lord builds, he's a warrior, he's a bodyguard. All these people, and then at the very end, David's sons were priests. No one really knows what that means, whether, whether it's, they're just, he, he, he just gave his sons this duty of, of helping the priests because they weren't really from the lineage of Aaron. And some people think, well, maybe he's designed, you know, gave his son priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. No one really knows. Some think it's, a, it's wrong that he did it. Some people think, but they're missing the point. And as I read this text and I see this orderly appointments of people who have the ability and the strengths to, to, to step up and to help David in his kingdom, the first thing I thought about was the Apostle Paul's instructions to the church of Corinth. Remember, everybody in Corinth was grabbing the mic. They were hogging the mic. They wanted to prophesy. And every, it's kind of chaos. People speaking in tongues. No one understood anything anyone was saying. And, and Paul's like, listen, listen, listen. We can't have all this chaos and this confusion in the church. 1 Corinthians 14. He ends with this. All things should be done decently and in order. Why? Because God is a God of order. God's not a God of chaos. God is a God of order. He establishes his, his, his creation and brings order because that's his character. That's his nature. He's a God of order. And the kingdom of God is orderly. The apostle Paul, the church planner, plants a church in Colossae and then writes to them and he says this. It's very interesting. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. You have not seen me face to face, Colossians chapter two. Then he says this, I'm praying that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. In him, all treasures are hidden, wisdom and knowledge. Then he writes this, for though I am absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your Good order, that unity, that loving unity you have for your others. Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, when Christ comes in, King Jesus comes in and we bow our knee to King Jesus, he brings order into our life, not chaos. He brings order. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. The problem is we, what, what Augustine would call, we have a disordered love. We, we love other things more than we love God. But when we love God first and foremost, things come to order. 
as wonderful as, as wonderful as it is to know that God will overcome conflicts, he will have the final conquest over all his enemies, as wonderful as it is to participate in the mission of God, calling people out of darkness and into the light and be able to give him all the glory, as wonderful as all that is. Those things don't make the kingdom. Those things don't make the kingdom truly glorious. What makes the kingdom truly glorious is the king. He's infinitely glorious because of his holiness, of his greatness. Verse 15, and I want to end here, is a glimpse of that glory. This is written, it's, it's difficult to overstate the significance of this verse. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all the people. Let, let, let me give you some application first. The word justice is forensic. It's court actions. It's legal decisions. The word equity is really better translated righteousness. It's, it's actions. It's behaviors. It's putting things right. Righteousness is a theme of the Bible because God himself is righteous. He puts things right. And not only was David called to be king, but he had his hand in the judiciary. David made sure that everyone under his rule, under his reign, under his kingdom, or in his kingdom, were given justice and righteousness without prejudice and without discrimination. Unbelievable. Just a glimpse. It's a glimpse of what's expected of God's king. It's a glimpse of what's expected of God's people. In fact, if you read the Old Testament prophets, when they were judging and and calling out the nations, it's because the nations refused to have justice and righteousness in their land. That's what the narrator wants us to see. David is, is the embodiment of God's rule in, on earth. He is God's chosen anointed. He rules as God himself would rule and God would himself govern his people. That's why chapter seven, the Davidic covenant, is alongside and weave together chapter eight so that we can celebrate this covenant-making king who reigns and rules in justice and righteousness. And we would say as the people of God that God's church is where justice and righteousness should reign. There should be no prejudice. We, we should act that way both in the church, outside the church, whether you're a mom, whether you're a dad, and your employer, someone works for you, you work for someone. It should be reflective of God's people living under King Jesus. Church is that foreshadow. Not perfect. Believe me, not perfect. But nonetheless, the kingdom of God on earth where there is justice and equity. And then someday we will. Someday we will live in the new Jerusalem that will descend out of heaven, prepared like a bride for her bridegroom. It will be perfect. It will be wonderful to live in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, in the new earth. This is just a foretaste as this king administers justice and righteousness to all the people. Now, as children of God, we live in the kingdom here and now, under King Jesus. Until the final consummation, we must love others, serve others, share the gospel with others, call people to come to Jesus, to have their sins forgiven. The gospel is the, the listen, the gospel is that the true king of kings has come. And the true king has come and is establishing a righteous kingdom. He will make all things right. 
When Jesus showed up in the gospel according to Mark, the first thing he says is the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. And the good news of the kingdom is the good news of the king and is Jesus. And what he's saying is, I am here. The kingdom that was promised through the prophets of the Old Testament, I am here, the new king. I have come to begin restoring all things. I am here. The promise of Genesis 3, the promise of Abraham, the promise to David is here. Your king, your guide, your provider, lover of your soul is here. Now the church is not the kingdom of God. God's kingdom creates the church as men and women come humbly, repentively, reconcile the King Jesus and submit to him and God works through us as he reigns and rules. We don't build a kingdom. We don't build a church. We preach it. We proclaim it. And people can reject it or receive it. At the end, when the Messiah will come, he will demonstrate and implement justice and righteousness for all. Isaiah 9, a child is born, son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The government of peace, there will be no end. Now listen, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with what? Justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The exercise of God's kingship through Jesus. That's why it is here already as we submit to King Jesus. But it will someday be complete. We're not waiting for its appearance as we live it out. What we're waiting for is its completion. When Jesus comes back, everything broken will be fixed. No more tears, no more death, no more injustice, no more hatred, no more prejudice. Only righteousness and justice for all. And the Bible teaches us that it's both a present reality as the church lives it out. And it's a future hope. Because you know and I know in the depths of our hearts, you know there's something broken here. God put that in our hearts. That Sunday when he comes, all conflict, all opposition will be put down and he will reign. And we're waiting on that. And that final day, we will shout with the elders and all of heaven with the words of Revelation 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there was loud voices in heaven saying what? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And amen. Let's worship him. Let's continue to worship him, not only in music, but in submitting our lives to King Jesus. He died for our sins so that justice can be satisfied. Our sins have been forgiven, paid for, and his righteousness can be applied. Family, that's what justification, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is that Jesus lived the perfect life that you could never live and died the death that you should have died. That on the cross, your sins was imputed to him as he died for them. And because of his perfect life, his righteousness was imputed to you by faith so that you can both be forgiven and made right before God. That's the gospel. That's what King Jesus has done the first time. The second time will come, he'll restore the earth. And he will reign and rule with his people. And my prayer is that everyone in this room will be there. 
with him. If you've never trusted Christ, yielded your life to King Jesus, today's the day. Today's the day you say, you're king, I'm not. You died for my sins, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus. That, that's, that, that's what you'll do today, I pray. And for the rest of us who know the Lord, love the Lord, let's, re, let's be filled with joy and gratitude of our great God and King. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this glimpse. We know it's not perfect. We know what the story's gonna entail later on. We know in our own lives, we don't have to look around, Lord, we just look in the mirror. That the things are broken, things aren't right. We sin, we have, we have evil thoughts, evil desires. But Lord, we're thankful that Jesus Christ on the cross bore all our sins, past, present, and future. Lord, that we can have his righteousness, not by our own doing, but all that Jesus has done. So, Father, as we continue to worship, our prayer is that those who don't know you will come to know you as King and Lord and bow their knee to Jesus who died for them, who rose for them. And, Lord, the rest of us who have known you, maybe short time, maybe long term, Lord, we'll just worship you. We'll we'll continually going back to that place of worship for all that you are and all that you have done in the gospel and through the gospel, looking forward to that day when there'll be no more pain, no more death, only everlasting joy with our Savior, we pray. Amen.